Katie and I, um, my wife and I, when we were first out of college, we worked uh, for a college ministry, and we were involved in that ministry while in college, and then for two years afterwards, we were interning with them. And one of the things we had people do, I'd be curious, how, how many people know what a DTR is? We you know what a DTR is? Katie, aha, one person, one person. So a DTR stands for define the relationship. And so you had like girls and guys, you know, hanging out and flirting and maybe dating one another. And we would tell them like, hey, hey man, I'm, I'm going to talk like to a guy because I usually want to tell a girl this. Hey man, like you need to like do a DTR, like define the relationship. Like you're hanging out with this girl and she's going to be confused, like, does he like me? Are we going to be dating? Are we dating? Instead of having just this weird, like, gradient where you go from not dating to slowly but surely you are dating, and you don't know really when it happened, it'd be like, hey, if you're going to be, like, you know, care for her well, like, have a moment where you define the relationship. Be like, hey, I, I like you. We've been hanging out, and I would like to, to date and see um, if we should get married uh, later on. And it would make, you know, make so that, it would make it so people aren't in these squishy, undefined, flirty, hanging out relationships where they didn't know what was going on. And it tells somebody what to expect. And this happens in many uh, situations. Katie's a teacher, so she has expectations in her classroom of what the students uh, are to do. And they get you know, a syllabus of what they're going to expect from her. Uh, employers give you a job description and responsibilities. And it's this defining the relationship. What is it like for this teacher and student? to have this relationship with an employer, an employee, or a girl and a guy who are dating. Parents set rules uh, giving this, this is what you can, you know, in some ways it's non-verbal, but it's like, hey, here's the expectations of what happens in our house. Here's the rules, and this is what we do when we're asking for something. We don't just yell at the person. We say, could you get that for me? I've said this like a million times to Hudson, like, try again. You can a ask for it and say, please. Sometimes it's just a, can you get that for me, please? <laughs> try it again, nice, <laughs> nicer. Uh, but we actually, when we're in relationships where we don't know what to expect, where we don't know what the person expects from us, and we don't know what to expect from them, they feel very unsafe because it's like, well, what is going on here? Like, if imagine an employer who it's like, well, the expectation from an employer is that they're going to pay you. And imagine it was like every week paycheck came, every time it comes around, that they're like, yeah, we're hopefully we're going to be able to pay you like things are kind of low. It's like, wait, that creates an unsafe relationship. Or if you don't know what to expect from a parent or a, you know, a spouse, it's like, well, what can I expect here? What do they want from me? What are the rules here? How do I please them? How am I kind of like succeeding in this relationship? And as we go through this series on Exodus, uh, we're in, this is number six, five, six, 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 number six. So it's eight weeks. Uh, and we're going to, the last the several chapters, we're going to go through pretty quickly. But this is the second book of the Bible. There's Genesis, then there's Exodus, and it's part of what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And you can kind of think of these as like the foundation constitutional documents for the people of Israel, telling them like this is who God is, this is what you can expect from him, this is what he's done for you, and this is how he, now what he expects from you, of how you're going to live. And these events that happen in the book of Exodus uh, happened, you know, like 3,000 years ago, between 1200 to 1500 B.C., and yet they're still relevant to us today, that this story that was for these people actually is the story that then Jesus lived out and then he invites us into. It's a story about freedom, of God coming to earth and saying, I'm going to bring my people out of, to give them freedom from the things that are enslaving them, that are oppressing them, that are pushing them down. And so we've seen so far in this story that uh, the people of Israel are in slavery, and it says that God saw and he heard their cries and he knew 
And then he says, I'm going to take action through this guy named Moses. And he uses Moses to free them from slavery in Egypt. He uses the ten plagues, you're perhaps familiar with them, of saying, let my people go. If you won't let them go, this is what's coming. And plague after plague after plague comes. And finally, Pharaoh says, fine, get out. And they leave. And they, uh, then Pharaoh changes his mind and is chasing the people. And then they cross through this sea to escape these enemies that are attacking them. And then we saw them going through the wilderness. They get through the sea, and the, the sea collapses on the people of Egypt that are pursuing them. And then they have this wilderness journey. Okay, we're not being pursued by Pharaoh or the Egyptians anymore, but now we don't have food. We don't have water. We're going through the desert. God's bringing us to the land he promised us, the land of Canaan, uh, modern-day Israel. And he's like bringing them there. And it's like, but what are we going to eat? So God provides for them, and he leads and protects them. So that what, that's what we've seen so far. And we said at the beginning of the series that uh, that they don't, God doesn't just free them from something, but he frees them for something. And he said that from the very beginning, I'm going to free my people so that they may come and worship me, serve me, sacrifice to me, be in a relationship with me. And so that's what we see this week. God says, let my people go that they may worship, that they may serve me. And what we see this week is God having a DTR with the people of Israel. Okay, like we've been hanging out a while, you know, it's kind of a lame way to say it, but yeah, we've been hanging out, I took you out of Egypt, I've freed you, I've led you here, and now we're going to have this DTR to find the relationship of what can you expect from me, and what do I expect from you? What does it look like to have a relationship with God? And he does this to create safety, he doesn't leave them guessing, and there's kind of several parts to it, so he's first going to invite them into relationship, and then they're going to uh, have vows that they say of what they're going to obey. And then we have a couple of chapters where it's like, we're, let's make this practical. What does this look like in everyday life? And then chapter 24, they make it official. And I kind of like to see this uh, whole thing as like a wedding ceremony of like God saying, here's, here's who I am. Do you want to be in a relationship with me? Here's the vows you speak. And at the very end, they kind of like sign the, the, the marriage certificate at the end. So the first part, God's invitation. Uh, this is chapter all of chapter 19. And this is three months after they have left Egypt. They have left Egypt, and 19, chapter 19, verse 4, summarizes, uh, God summarizes to them what he's done. So Exodus 19, verse 4. It says, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the first verse, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So I did this to Egyptians. I brought you out of Egypt. You've seen how I defeated them. And bearing them on eagles' wings, there's a lot of people who would say that how this probably isn't a bald eagle, but some other uh, eagle, that, that sometimes when little eagles are learning to fly, like they'll be kind of, you know, flapping around, but they'll have the, the parent eagle kind of like underneath them, keeping them, keeping them going. And then there's some people say, there's no proof that that ever happens. So that's one inter interpretation of how it's like, well, how did God bear them in eagle's wings? Like they're learning to fly, and he's carrying them out. Or it can just be this picture of an eagle can swoop down with power and speed, and God swoop, kind of swooped down into Egypt, and he brought them out, and they are now safe. Then we heard the third thing he did, I brought you to myself. That was the goal, that they would be gods. And then in verses 5 through 6 that we already read just now, he's inviting them into a covenant relationship, and he's going to give them terms for this relationship. You might be like, covenant relationship? I don't ever say that in my normal life, but the situation we're familiar with is 
familiar with is the covenant of marriage, where you have two people standing in front of each other, in front of a bunch of witnesses, saying, this is what I vow to you, this is what I'm committing to you, and they go back and forth and say those vows to each other. And it's appropriate to think of this as a wedding ceremony um, at Mount Sinai when God is doing this with them, because later in the Bible he calls unfaithfulness to this covenant, unfaithfulness to him, adultery. Like, you, we made this covenant together, we got married, we vowed to each other, and then you're going to go and cheat on me, you're going to go commit adultery. And we see this pattern that we saw in, in uh, chapter 19, verse 4, where he says, You yourselves have seen what I've done. So he tells them, this is what I've done. And then he says, now, I want, this is what I want you to be. I want you to be this kingdom of priests to me. The words he says, I bore you on eagle's wings. Then he says, you're going to be my treasure possession. Uh, all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so he's like, this is who I am. This is what I've done. And this is who you are if you'll commit to this relationship with me. And now this is what I want you to do. And this is a pattern you see all throughout the Bible, that when God is asking people to do something, it's based on, here's who I am, here's what I've already done for you, and in light of that, this is now who you are, and so now you will live and you'll obey. This is a, a pattern you see very clearly in the New Testament as well. And notice all the I and me language there. So verse 4 says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so all this I and me language, and that's why I titled this sermon, you maybe saw the bullets and you're like, why does it just say his? His what? <laughs> but the, I titled the sermon his on the bulletin because that was the whole goal there, that they would be his, that they would belong to God, that he, God would say, you are mine, and I am also yours. But the goal of God saving them was, I want you to belong to me, to be mine. And it's like, here's what I'm offering you, that you can belong to me. You can be my people. Do you accept the terms? Do you want that? And the question I want to give us as we go through this passage this morning is, do you want God? Do you want God? And do you want to be God's? Do you want God, not, not God's plural, God's apostrophe, S, possessive. Do you want to be God's? Do you want to be his? Do you want to belong to him, heart, body, mind, soul? So that's what God is asking him. He's saying, do you want me to be your God and do you want to be my people? Is what he's inviting them into. And the way he invites them into this is he gives them these ten commandments that uh, will you're probably familiar with at least the name of it. So that's in chapter 20. It's like, okay, this is what it's going to mean to be my people. This is what it means for me to be your God. And God, you know, you can, he writes their vows for them. And what we notice, like in relationship with God, it's always there's privileges and there's responsibilities. There's here's who I'm going to be to you, and here's what I'm asking of you, that if you're going to be in this relationship. And so the Ten Commandments, you can really think of them um, as they're almost like the, the, they, well, they are the foundation of, uh, the rest of these chapters, we're, gonna, we're in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, but then chapters 21 through 23 are then going through what do these look like in detail. And so it's like, here's the Ten Commandments, they're like at the core, and then around that you have other laws that are telling you what does it look like to live these out in everyday life. And then basically the whole Torah, the whole first five books of the Bible are like building around these Ten Commandments. And even at the center of the Ten Commandments, when Jesus is asked, um, you know, teacher, what are the, what's the most important commandment? He says, well, the first is this, love God with your whole heart, with everything you have, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so you can think of it as like, here's the center, love God, love people. And then all the Ten Commandments are about either loving God or loving people. And then all the other specific laws are saying, well, what does that look like in everyday practical uh, life? But first what you see is God gives us declaration. So chapter 20, verse 1. It said, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so he starts there. This is what I've done. I've, I've already saved you. I've already proven I love you. I've already redeemed you out of slavery. And I think oftentimes we can look back at the Old Testament and say, well, those poor old Israelites, they just had to earn God's love. God gave them all those rules and said, this is how I'll love you is if you can keep all those rules. And they got grumpy old God and we get gentle Jesus. You know, thank, you know we, we might even say, thank God that we did away with all that Old Testament stuff because now we have Jesus and it's better. But no, it's always the same God and always the same way of relating to people by grace, through faith, in Him. And God has said, this is what I've already done. I've already shown you grace. And now you can be my people. You don't have to do anything for it. But then he says, but this is what it means to be my people. This is what it looks like to be uh, in relationship with me. And we might even think the Ten Commandments, those are pretty basic, but they're actually deep. And so I'm gonna, we're going to go through them very quickly. I can't like spend a whole bunch of time on them. But maybe as I'm going through them, you can consider to yourself, which of these am I uh, having a hard time with? So the first one is this. He says, you shall have no, this is verse 3 of chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me, which he's saying, don't put anything above or even alongside God. And you can kind of see maybe what you're relying on as the God in your life by thinking of how would you complete this sentence? If only blank, then blank. If only I had more money, then I'd have peace. If only this person would like me, then I would feel worthwhile, I would feel valuable. If only I could go on this vacation, if only I could work less, if only blank, then I would have blank. And you can see that in those situations, when we have that, it's something putting something above or alongside God to say, if I only had this, then I could be happy, then I could be complete, I could be fulfilled, I would have the good life. And what God says is, no, you have to rely on me for that, that I am the one who gives you the good life. And this is how you worship God, is having no other gods before him. And God, we see that he wants an exclusive relationship. This isn't like, you know, we, you know, we, you know, we're kind of married, but it's okay if you kind of like, you know, check other girls out. He's like, no, exclusive relationship, me and you. I don't want you cheating on me. I don't want you having other gods. Me, I'm your God. Commandment number two says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And this is referring to, uh, we don't really do this today, but where they would have their, their gods be represented in like a carved image of like, um, a bull or something, or a cow. It's like, here's a symbol of what our God is. And God is like, no, don't reduce me to a carved image of me. I don't want you to reduce me down. I'm so much more than that little statue that you could make of me. And we might even say to God, um, you know, I can't believe in a God who would blank. You might read, even maybe in this series, in Exodus, like, I can't believe in a God who would destroy the Egyptians to save his people. And we're saying, God, how I want to understand you, I want to domesticate you, I want to I want to understand everything about you, and it needs to make sense to me. And we say, God, and we can reduce God in that way, that we, you know, what we think God should be, and then we squish him into that mold. But instead we need to say, well, who has God revealed himself to be? And now I need to align myself with that, not, God, you need to align with what I want, and so I'm going to take the parts of you I don't like or I'm uncomfortable with. Third commandment is in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And... Uh, this maybe we maybe think like okay that means don't say oh my god 
or don't say, you know, God, swear word, I won't say it, obviously. Uh, but it's more than don't say that, but it's we can use God's name to justify or cover up behavior. I was just reading with a friend in Genesis where um, a, a guy is coming into his dad. He's pretending actually to be his brother. This is the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob is pretending to be Esau with his dad Isaac. And his dad Isaac says, uh, well, I asked Esau to go and get this, like, meal for me and cook it for me. And he says, Jake, he, he thinks Jacob is Esau because he's pretending. He's like, Esau, how'd you get it so fast? Like, it takes more time. And he says, well, God enabled me to get it fast, when actually that's not what happened. So it's using God to, like, cover up behavior or to justify behavior. Like, well, I just feel like God wants me to do this. And it's like, well, it might be wrong, but you're saying, God, if God told you, I guess I can't argue with you. So it's using God's name in vain. The fourth is keep, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And this is God's uh, institution of uh, six weeks we work and one day we use to rest, to cease from our work. And this challenges us to say, well, I mean, there's always more to do, right? <laughs> if it comes to the time for the Sabbath, it's like, I can't take Sabbath day. I can't take a day off today to rest and focus on God. There's always more to do. And he's saying, will you trust me that the world and you aren't going to fall apart if you stop for a day? Focus on me. Fifth is honor your father and your mother. And this isn't just how you talk to them, but how you talk about them. And my generation, at least I'm just going to lump us all together because I think this is how it works, uh, we like to kind of take a victim mentality with our parents of like, this is what my parents didn't give me, and now I've got to go to therapy, and I have all these wounds and trauma, and it's like we can take that as a as license to like, I'm just not going to honor my parents. I'm just going to talk to them how talk about them however I want. But we also also calls for honoring the spiritual fathers and mothers among us too. And often younger people think they know better than older people when it's like, well, actually in 20 years it's going to be like, yeah, they were right. I should just listen. So sixth is do not murder. And we might be like, well, haven't killed anybody, <laughs> haven't killed anybody recently. Check, followed that command, that's good. But then when you come to Jesus, he's teaching on these and he says, well, you've heard it said do not murder, but I'm going to say to you, if you're hating somebody in your heart, if you have uh, malcontent or uh, contempt for them, and the root, he's saying the root of that murder is anger and contempt, and you need to be watching out for that too. So you can ask yourself, do you have ill will towards someone, resentment, bitterness? And what we're encouraged to by Jesus in the Bible is, well, we need to see them as fellow image bearers, people who have the image of God, and if they're a Christian, they're uh, your brother and sister in Christ. Seventh is do not... Um, commit adultery. And Jesus, we might be like, okay, I haven't slept with someone who's not my spouse. Check, got it good. But Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I'm going to say to you, even if you're lusting in your heart that you're turning someone into a sexual object, even that is wrong. Eighth is do not steal, which is kind of having a lifestyle like I'm going to take instead of give. Like I'm just going to take as much as I can. Number nine is about a harmful speech that we should not bear false witness against your neighbor. And this could come out as gossip, talking bad about someone behind their back, like having harmful speech that is talking bad about somebody. And then 10 is do not covet. And coveting is maybe, we'd be more familiar with like jealousy or envy. It's wanting what someone else has. And if you think about all these commandments, so the first four are like about loving God, and then six through 10 are about loving other people. But they all, the base of all of them, you break all of them. When you covet, when you want what somebody else has, then you will be led to gossip about them. You'll be led to stealing uh, from them or from other people. And so 
that could, that's putting something above God. Like, I want this thing. I need it. And I'm willing to even hurt somebody else to get it. And notice all of these commands are communal because the obeying happens in community. It's all about how you treat God, relation with Him, how you treat other people. And we can't, in, if we go in the New Testament, you see this lived out in, there's 59 one another's in the New Testament. Forgive one another, bear with one another, love one another. And those all are how we uh, love one another in, in person. And we cannot obey Jesus alone. We cannot know, obey God alone because unless you're in a situation where you need to treat somebody else a certain way, you aren't obeying. And Martin Luther, who's a, an old a pastor from the uh, 16th century, he, would, he pointed out that break, when you break any of the other nine commandments, you're always breaking the first one, putting something else above or alongside God. And so anytime we break those, we're putting something above God. And there was uh, a situation where Jesus was talking to this rich man. He's like, Jesus, what do I need to do to hear an eternal life? And he says, well, you know the commands. You know, he rattles off some of the Ten Commandments, and the guy's like, I did it all. And he's like, okay, sell all you have. You're rich. Sell all you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the guy walks away sad because he had a lot of stuff. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're obeying maybe nine of these, but the first one, having no other gods above me, you're putting money above God. And so he gets down to the um, what's in his heart there. And so then, starting in chapter 20, verse 22, to the end of chapter 23, this is really about daily life with God. What does it look like to live out these commandments in everyday life? And I promise we're not going to go through all of those. Uh, but it's kind of like, well, okay, do not murder. But what about this situation? What if this would happen? It's kind of going through, like, what would the Ten Commandments look like? In everyday life and it's really showing them well these vows that God there he's asking the people to do like will you obey this these are the this is the basis for your life it's not just for the ceremony like you just say these vows now but it's like this is all of life to be lived in all of life and what's important uh, to note is that these are literally not written in stone uh, the, the Ten Commandments get written on these tablets of stone and then these were written on parchment and it's like showing those Ten Commandments that's like the core and then these are a little more like situational like this was what it, what was needed for these people at this time in this place in the culture that they lived in and there's other law codes uh, and there's uh, some comparisons you can make so other law codes that were written at this time and some of those uh, what one difference is that these laws that God is sketching out here uh, they protect women and children and not just men and they actually protect slaves other law codes would be like I mean this these laws are for you know it doesn't really matter what happens to women and children and slaves, but God's laws protect those people because all are made in the image of God. And also talks about how to protect foreigners, widows, orphans, and the poor. So one big thing you see in these laws is God cares for all people. It doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your social class, doesn't matter where you come from. And second, a lot of other laws in this time were punishments based on the social status of the victim. And so if you did something to a slave, it's like not a big deal. If you did something to a high-ranking government official, that is a big deal, more severe punishment. But we see that God makes no distinction between rich and poor, royalty or peasant. And so we see that God is just and fair. But now, as you would, if you would go through these laws, you would read them, and if I read some out loud to you, you'd be like, that's really weird. Uh, and actually, I don't think, I don't even know if that's good. A good or righteous law, this seems really bad, God. And you may be even happy, I've had people like in Starbucks say to me, um, they've quoted like one of the laws from maybe this section like Exodus and they said did you know that was in there is this the God you believe in that would have a law like that 
uh, about how to treat this person, how to have the death penalty for this situation. And I don't know if any of you have heard of a, a guy named Richard Dawkins, but he was a he's a little less like known now. But when I was like in college and seminary, he's a he's an atheist who w was you know, there was like kind of four guys that would have a lot of talks online. They wrote books about how basically God is bad, religion poisons everything, and his book is called The God Delusion. And in the, I can't remember if it's the introduction of the first chapter, he says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And we have to ask, is that true? when you read these words in Exodus and they strike you as, oh, that's what God did to the Egyptians to free these people? Oh, that's what God did? We saw last week the Amalekites. Oh, that's how God says you should deal with this situation? Like, it seems kind of brutal, kind of harsh. Like, those aren't the laws we have today. And so our question is, well, can we trust the Old Testament? Is this, are these laws true? Or do they show God's goodness and righteousness? And just one simple way you can trust the Old Testament is, is this kind of this reasoning: um, is if Jesus was resurrected, then he is who he said he is. And if Jesus is who he said he is, then we can trust him. And if we can trust him, we can trust the Old Testament because Jesus trusted the Old Testament. He quotes from it. He teaches about it. He says, oh, "It's all about me. I've come not to abolish it now. Like, oh, look at those old, outdated laws. I'm going to get rid of those. I'm going to bring a new law of love." No, he says, "I'm not coming to abolish them." And come to fulfill them. And he says, if anybody says you can break any little, he says, every jot and tittle, so that's like the dot of an I or a cross of a T. If you say any of that is bad, like then you are condemned. And he says, so I'm not against the Old Testament. I'm fulfilling it. And one way we can think about it is in every relationship there is communication. And somebody could say something to you, and you could think, I know exactly what they mean by that. And it, it's not nice. You know, we might interpret somebody's words as like, well, that means they don't care about me. And then they're like, oh, no, no, that, that isn't what I meant at all. Here's what I meant. And so there's words in the Bible that they come to us. And then we interpret it as there's no other way for that to be understood besides that is you know, unrighteous. That is a bad law. But if you're like in a relationship with somebody and you believe, we believe the best about them, that they aren't, they care about me, they love me, they're not trying to hurt me. We can do that with these laws too, that we can assume if something seems barbaric to us, assume you're misunderstanding it and believe the best in God, that if you fully understood it, you would see, oh, this is how this was good and right for those people in that time. And so I'm just going to give you two examples. One is this, these chapters talk a lot about slaves and like how to treat your slave and how to get people out of slavery and what to do when someone is a slave. And, like, and you're like, wait a second, like, Slavery, bad. We learned that a couple, you know, 100, so 100, 200 years ago in our country. Slavery, bad. We need to ask, ask, what kind of slavery is this? And this was not the kind of slavery that, and God actually, in these laws, he says, there will be no man-stealing. So that's an application of do not steal. No man-stealing. You can't go off to Africa and steal people out of their land and make them your slaves. That's not how you get people getting slavery. But this slavery was voluntary. And it was a debt slavery, that if someone hit bankrupt, managed their property, managed their farm wrong, or they just went through season after season where the crops get destroyed, it's like, well, what's the welfare system? How do you keep surviving? It's like you come to your neighbor and say, I, I need to be provided for. Can I work for you and become your slave, become your servant? 
And so it was voluntary, and it was temporary. They were released after seven years with resources to now start a new life on their own. And so they had laws that protected slaves. And even there was a law that said, if the slave at the end of seven years says, no, I love my master, I don't want to go free, then it says, he's. in what situation would that be? And like, they, I just love working for him better than running my own farm, so I'm just going to stay. And then what happens is that uh, they go to the doorpost and they have this little, like, all they pierce through the ear to kind of mark this person belongs to this person. Why? Because they love them. And that's what God says to us, that we are going to be his servants. And then he says, I'm, you are mine, my treasured possession. You belong to me. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm coming, humbling myself as a servant on your behalf. So it's not such a bad thing to be a slave or a servant in God's kingdom. A second one that might be a little, might not like hearing is in chapter 21, uh, verses 21 through 20, 23 through 24. I'll just read this. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And so we may be we're familiar with, well, an eye for an eye. And what this law is saying, that the punishment needs to fit the crime, not go beyond what is, is due for it. So if there is an eye taken, an eye is now, I mean, not literally, but an eye is what's due. It was the maximum penalty. But look, it says, do not, it doesn't say take an eye. It says, give an eye. And so it's from the perspective of the person who's done the wrong is supposed to give in order to make it right. It's not from the other side of the person who was wronged taking revenge on that person, taking eye for eye. You hurt me and now I can hurt you as much as you hurt me because look, eye for an eye and I'm going to take that from you. And so this was a law not about the one who is wrong making them pay, but about the one who did wrong making it right. And then in Jesus' day, by the time Jesus was teaching, it got reversed. And so when he's teaching about it, he says, well, you've heard it said an eye for an eye. And he's like, this isn't supposed to be about uh, taking revenge and about retaliation. He says, he goes from the person uh, who has been wrong. He says, no, if you're the person who's been wrong, it's not eye for an eye revenge. He says, uh, then you let them hit the other cheek as well. Then you say you love them. You pray for them. You bless them. You overcome evil with good. If you're the person who's been wrong, your stance is, I'm going to love this person. And so he, you know, Jesus isn't talking to the person who did the wrong, who's supposed to make it right, but he's like, you guys are using this to take revenge, and that's not how it's supposed to be. And Jesus himself showed, well, God loves his enemies. You, if you're going to love people like God, that means when they hurt you, you don't seek revenge, that you bless, that you love, that you give. And really, all of these commands all point to Jesus and a way to think about God's commands is that God's commands reflect God's character. And this God that is giving these commands, this is the very God, the very Father that Jesus fully knows, fully trusts, fully loves, fully obeys. And this is the God who sent Jesus. And so we can trust that if rightly understood, we will see the goodness and beauty of God and his commands and how they're all about Jesus. I've already mentioned Jesus when he comes. He says, I'm not coming to abolish these. I'm coming to fulfill them. And this is in, um, he says this in Matthew chapter 5 when he's giving his Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Um, Luke 24, he says, he sits down with his disciples and he shows them how all the scriptures, including these laws, were all pointed to him. They're all about them. And we've talked about in this series how Jesus said, I'm leading people in a new exodus, that I'm giving new freedom. And Connor, when we were studying this passage in preparation for today, he pointed out that... Um, in chapter 19, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And Connor said, well, we could replace the word Egyptians with sin, Satan, 
death. You yourselves have seen what I've done to sin, Satan, and death, how I delivered you from them. I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. And now I want you to obey me and worship me and serve me. And you'll be my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. And those words get applied to us later on in the um, in First Peter. I'll just read. There's two verses. Um, a guy named Peter, one of Jesus' followers, is telling people who are not Israelites, he's applying these words to him. He says, First Peter 2, 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Jesus, he's the, he's the new Moses, the new mediator, mediator of a better covenant than was before. Not that that covenant through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, was bad, but it was a sign pointing forward. And you don't, you, know, you don't hang out at the sign for Disneyland. You go to Disneyland, right? So this covenant is pointing forward to this one that Jesus is going to enact. And he gives this new law, the Sermon on the Mount, one of those places of like, here's what it looks like to be in my kingdom, to be my people. And actually he doesn't say you're going to be less righteous than the people obeying the old law. He says more righteous. And he keeps going to the heart like, look, the people, some of the religious teachers, they're all obeying this on the outside. Like that rich man, you're obeying it on the outside, but you don't have God first in your heart. I want you to obey it from the heart. And the new blood of the covenant that enters us into it and forgives us is Jesus' blood so we can have fellowship with God. And we'll see next week, or in two weeks, how instead of God's presence being in this tent, the people of Israel, that now it's actually in God's people. And so as we think about making this personal, God invites you into a relationship on his terms. God wants you, not some of you, not just the good parts of you, not an hour and 15 minutes of you on a Sunday. He wants you, you, a person, a whole person. And God will not be a hobby, a side gig, a box of check, a recurring event every Sunday morning on your calendar. God wants an all of you, all of life commitment. And so we ask, have to ask ourselves, do we want that? God wants you. Do you want God? Do you want to be his? And we might be like, well, if it's about these, you know, if we just went through the Ten Commandments and God is like, this is what I want, this is what it means to be my people, you've got to do this. Or maybe when I was going through that list, you were like, man, I've broken a lot of these this morning or this week or throughout my life. And we might say, well, I'm going to fail. I can't live up to it, God. I can't obey all this. And that's absolutely true. There's even a tension, we couldn't read through it in these chapters, where Mo, it's like, God's like, I'm going to appear to the people and talk to them. But he's like, but don't get close. And then God's like, but, but come close. And then they start going up the mountain and they freak out. And it's like this tension that keeps going back and forth. Is, can they be close to God or not? Can they approach God or not? God's inviting them, but he's also saying, stay back so you don't die. And it's like this back and forth. And this tension will happen throughout the whole book of like, can people actually be close to God, be in his presence, be in relationship with him? And that gets resolved in the next book, um, Leviticus, with the sacrifices that God built forgiveness into this relationship. I know you're going to fail at these Ten Commandments. I even know in a couple, in, in, you know, like tomorrow, I mean, we're going to see it next week. I even know tomorrow you're going to break the first one. You're going to make a God and put it before me. But he builds forgiveness into it. Of like, I know you're going to fail. And my part in this relationship is to forgive you. And your part is to rely on me for it. And so we might say there's two wrong ways to approach these commandments. I'm accepted only if I obey. And that's really basically like here's ten ways 
uh, to be loved by God. Keep these ten ways and God will love you. I'm accepted only if I obey. Another is I'm, ac- I'm accepted so I don't obey, which makes the Ten Commandments ten ways to ignore God. Of like, well, either I'm accepted only if I obey, or well, I'm accepted by God so I don't have to obey. But the real combination of how it's supposed to go together is I'm accepted, therefore I obey. But these are ten ways to show love for God in this relationship he's invited us into. And you can think of it as, you know, those little signs that you might see in Hobby Lobby or Walmart where it's like, in this family we wash our hands, we say please, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, And you can think of those as like, well, those aren't the way to get into this family. That's what it means to be part of this family. And what God is saying, "This this is what it means to be part of this family. I've already got you in, I've taken you out, and if you want to stay in and be my people, like, this is what it means to be part of this family. And so obedience, we see, is worship making God most important to us, our highest priority, our greatest love, our most valued treasure. But at the same time, we're also his treasure possession. And what I've been thinking about this week is what would change about my everyday life if I woke up every day and was just like, I am God's. I am his. I belong to him. And there's nothing today that can change that. What would that change for you if every day you just woke up and felt that and prayed to God, I am yours. I belong to you. I want to walk into this day knowing that. Let's pray. Father, you give us these commands not to earn your love, but to show love for you. And so, would you help us to live as your people? Would you help us to not run away when we fail, but to run to you for the forgiveness we need? It's your son's name we pray. Amen.